You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing the contemporary Christian music industry and the religious and political messages that massive industry broadcasts. Why did evangelical leaders invest so heavily in this music, and why did they especially want it to resonate with teenagers? What are the racial, political, and nationalistic ideas this music promotes? And what does the place of Christian pop culture today tell us about what evangelicals and other conservative Christians want for America and for the 2024 election? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. This is our second episode of 2024 and the second in our three-part series examining various aspects of conservative religion and politics as a lead-up to the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Our first episode in the series explored ex-evangelicals and their insights into white evangelicals' political commitments. Beyond this three-part series, we have several episodes on religion and politics that could be of interest to you, like episode 32 on the FBI and white Christian nationalism, episode 19 on religion in the CIA, episode 16 on evangelical masculinity, episode 13 on faith-based prisons, and many more. For this episode, the second in our three-part series on conservative religion and politics, I'm very excited to be chatting with Dr. Leah Payne. She is the author of the new book, God Gave Rock and Roll to You, A History of Contemporary Christian Music. You can read an excerpt from God Gave Rock and Roll to You in the upcoming March issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Leah. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? Hi, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here with you. I'm a big fan of The Revealer, so I I feel very special being here today. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. We appreciate it. So um, to get us started, for listeners who've never experienced contemporary Christian music, and I fall into that camp, what is it exactly? What is this massive industry that you describe in your book as, quote, the soundtrack of white evangelical culture? And then beyond that, what's its purpose? Sure. Well, contemporary Christian music, and it's it's known in the biz as CCM. Yes. Contemporary Christian music, it's interesting because it is a market niche that is not defined by music in terms of like particular styles of music, but by the lyrical mm. content. Contemporary Christian music can be many different genres in terms of the sounds, but it serves an audience that wants a particular type of lyric. And it's Christian generally, but it's also certain specific kind of Christian message, conservative white Protestant, aka white evangelical, kind of that that hodgepodge of of conservative white Protestants. It came to be over the course of time a, a sort of parallel entertainment universe that was meant to provide evangelicals, especially evangelical young people, with forms of popular culture that were close enough to mainstream culture, but also included messages that upheld conservative white Protestant theologies Mm. and ideas about politics Mm. and many more. So ideally, youths would experience contemporary Christian music and have the benefits of the fun of pop culture without 
the things that conservative white Protestant parents thought were the downsides of, of pop culture. Sticking with that, I want to interject something that readers who uh, get your book will learn, and that's that you come to this topic both as a scholar and as someone who grew up with and had personal connections to this music. And you say in the book that you grew up listening to contemporary Christian music as a teenager, even though maybe others in the household didn't love it. Uh, But then you also ended up working at a contemporary Christian music recording studio and married an aspiring contemporary Christian music artist. So I'd love for our listeners to hear what enchanted you personally about this music and industry. And then separately, you know, now thinking back as a scholar and all the research you've done, since it maybe wasn't a coincidence that you became enamored with this music as an adolescent, why did evangelical leaders really want to target this specifically to teenagers? Yeah, that's a great question. And and it's true. I grew up in a household my father did not like contemporary Mm. Christian music. So he thought it for the simple reason he was a pastor. So you would think he'd be all for it, but he didn't like the quality. He thought it wasn't very (laughs) good music. So he didn't like it in our home. So I grew up with the music in kind of an ambient way. Mm. Like it was just everywhere. If you went to youth group, which I did, it was there. If you went to any kind of public event for conservative white Protestants for holidays or anything like that. It was there. I write about in the book that it was in protests and weddings and funerals and just, you know, the music was everywhere. And almost everybody I knew from those circles had been to Christian Mm. music festivals and participated in this, Mm. in this parallel world. Contemporary Christian music is seen as kind of a, a quirky subculture. I actually <laughs> liked even quirkier subculture music as a teen. I liked Broadway music, mm. um, <laughs> which I still stand by. I stand by that choice. Um, <laughs> but I was deeply influenced by this world. And then I, I married an aspiring contemporary Christian music artist and moved to Nashville, Tennessee after college. And I actually got a job in a coffee shop because that's what you do if you have a humanities degree. That's what I did in the early 2000s. <laughs> And I got a job working for Charlie Peacock, who is a renowned producer, not just of contemporary Christian music, was an expert in that field. And so I worked for a while and then went to graduate school eventually because I just wanted to be a religion nerd. A few years after I, I finished my dissertation, and I kept coming back to contemporary Christian music and its power. Mm. It's the source of frequent jokes. There's an episode of King of the Hill has a whole long extended joke about <laughs> contemporary Christian music. Seinfeld has joked about CCM. It's, you know, it's kind of like a national joke in in certain circles. And I think that gives the impression that it wasn't really formative, really powerful. But I kept coming back to the fervor of the people who were really involved in that world mm. and also the the messages from that world. So, you know, being um, a religion scholar, I thought I I need to look into that. And so mm. then it just started like a six-year <laughs> binge into the world that, you know, I remembered as a child, but it's really fascinating going back to as a scholar. Mm. And it's been kind of a wild ride and really fun too. You had mentioned a little bit about teenagers as as the focus for this music and parents, you know, maybe preferred that to other aspects of popular culture. But one of the things you've also hinted at is that 
it wasn't just a music industry that evangelicals built up, uh, but a whole sort of alternative world of Christian pop culture, including movies, television, books, etc. And I'm sure that much of that isn't only about adolescence. So what have evangelical leaders believe can be achieved by investing in movies, music, and more that look like regular pop culture, but that have conservative Christian messaging? That's such a great question. And I think that the conservative white Protestant media makers who created this whole world, they, they understood things mm. so quickly and so well about the dawn of mass media and media culture and marketing. I think they understood arguably more than many other religionists, mm. if you can get to people through specific forms of mass media, music especially. I mean, I mm -hmm. think anyone here or anyone listening if you're an adult and you hear a song that was really important to you as a 15 year old, mm -hmm. it just gets you right. There's a kind of, even if you don't think the song's any good. Yeah. Yeah. Early on in the book, I talk about temperance workers who they referred to the magic power of song because they were trying to convince the general American public to do something that's, it's, it's unbelievable. They actually convinced people in a lot of ways to, um, you know, give up alcohol and they were able to do it in partnership with these temperance hymn makers who wrote these really mm. stirring songs and people would be very um, emotionally engaged. And so um, even back as far as the early 20th century, yeah. the people who were making this kind of music were revivalists. So people who who believe that there's some form of Protestantism that's dying and they need to mm -hmm. help re-energize it and resurrect it through rituals that people will usually recognize if they see Billy Graham on TV, old footage mm. of that. Through these revival meetings, these media makers saw an opportunity to shape their communities and public life in general. And a lot of them rightly reckoned mm -hmm. that capturing like the, the worlds and the imaginations of young people was going to be key to that effort. If you want a movement, you know, to... Mm -hmm to move into the future, you got to get the young in there. I think that they were just really intuitive and, and they had a lot of practice at yeah. it because revivalists are really traditionally really innovative people who even as far back as the 18th century and, and beyond, you know, they're using new forms of media. So it could be printed pamphlets or then, you know, songbooks, radio. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, the media complex that develops in the 20th century could sort of see it coming if you looked at how mm. revivalists had mm -hmm. had um, done things in, you know, hundreds of mm. years earlier. Yeah, yeah. They were always going to be on the cusp of, of experimenting with that. And you see that today. There's all these, you know, in the book, I talk about how there are media influencers on TikTok. Probably like, I would guess, you know, as soon as TikTok hit the American marketplace, there were conservative white Protestants who, who thought, okay, here we go, mm. you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, so taking that information, I want to transition just a little bit. And one of the things that stood out to me while reading your book is how often you note how contemporary Christian music brings together religious and political ideas, especially Christian and American identities. So I'll read um, two things that you wrote. You write that, quote, conversations about what music ought to be made who ought to make it, and what messages it should include, reveal how white evangelicals aim to raise their children to be ideal citizens of the kingdom of God 
and of the United States, end quote. And elsewhere, you write that contemporary Christian music produced music that served as a sonic shorthand for white evangelical orthodoxy and social action, prized for its capacity to disseminate evangelical messages about what it means to be Christian and American, end quote. So how does this music convey messages about what it means to be Christian and American? And I'm especially curious, why were those two identities conjoined? In other words, why is this evangelical music also about America and nationalism? That's a great question. I think one of the things that's really fascinating to me about contemporary Christian music as a genre, which I think is now in fairly significant decline, how it was an, such an efficient vehicle for certain forms of patriotism and, and certain forms of nationalism. I think in terms of why, why these groups were this way, one of the things that was unexpected in my findings is how much of the music was produced by a really small group of people. So we think of evangelicalism as a kind of generic catch-all category. And, you know, there's whole bodies of literature about what mm. is an evangelical and how do we know? And if we're looking at contemporary Christian music as this is the sound of evangelicalism, which it, it has functioned in that way really since its inception, you see that only a few groups of conservative white Protestants are making it. So white Baptists, many of whom are Southern Baptist and Pentecostals, and eventually charismatics were sort of like a daughter-cousin tradition to the Pentecostals. So you get the ideas that appeal to these specific people. And for Baptists in particular, who, you know, for much of the, the 20th century was, I think, mm -hmm. the Southern Baptist century. Um, they're in pretty precipitous decline now. But Baptists, white Baptists, were very sure. invested in a particular kind of theology of the United States. So from the earliest productions of contemporary Christian music, one of the big early labels was um, a label called Word Records, and they produced the songs of Southern Baptist churches. So you had tons of God and country stuff. There's the Star Spangled Banner right alongside the old rugged cross or some sort of iconic evangelical hymn. In some cases, that's how contemporary Christian music figures came to mainstream recognition. One example I use is this woman named Sandy Patty, who was a huge star in contemporary Christian music, but mainstream audiences got to know her in the 1980s because hmm. she did these hugely bombastic versions hmm. of the Star Spangled Banner. And she became kind of like the go-to gal <laughs> who would do the Star Spangled Banner versions. Mm. Um, and she appeared on The Tonight Show and she performed as part of ABC's coverage of Liberty Weekend, which is a celebration of the restoration of the Statue of Liberty. And then when Reagan era media makers wanted to create a kind of mm -hmm. heartwarming Christmas special that also featured the president and first lady really prominently, they were quick to seek out contemporary Christian music artists as part of that celebration. Hmm. So it seems that people both outside and inside the industry saw part of creating a, a soundtrack of nationalism. Of, mm. I mean, that's kind of one of those things that was a little bit of a surprise to me. I knew that the communities that created it were really interested in creating a theology of America that was pretty specific. Yeah. But the fact that outside media makers also recognized it, that was really fascinating to me. 
Yeah. Well, since you've gotten us thinking about how, you know, you described that it's a rather small group of people who've been making this music, let's then talk specifically about race and gender. Will you give us an overview of the racial and gender dynamics of contemporary Christian music and then the reasons for those racial and gender dynamics? Sure. Yes. Contemporary Christian music is overwhelmingly white. And in terms of the top charts, a lot of that has to do with uh, genre. What's Hmm. distinct about contemporary Christian music, it reflects like segregated market niches in the United States in terms of race Mm -hmm. and also Mm -hmm. reflects particular social visions that come out of conservative white Protestant movements. When it comes to gender, for example, a lot of the messaging was really oriented toward reinforcing conservative ideas about the social order of the home and about um, the sexuality of teens. For example, I have a long list of songs that were written warning teens from having extramarital sex. And what's kind of interesting about that is a lot of the songs sound a lot like mainstream music, which talks about sex in a much different way, <laughs> typically. And that became a huge part of, of the industry. The industry did what many businesses do, which as it grows, it homogenizes and consolidates. And that is reflected in the whiteness of contemporary Christian music, like as it as it grew. And this is something that's really interesting. You know, as mainstream charts diversified, particularly in the late 20th century, early 21st century, contemporary Christian music doubled down on its audience. And part of that was a a sales and marketing decision. You know, the the target audience for a lot of contemporary Christian music Hmm. was a figure who came Hmm. to be known as Becky. (laughs) Um, And she is the creation of marketers, a composite figure of the target customer of contemporary Christian music. And she was a conservative white suburban mom who, you know, was ferrying her children around to various activities and shopping and all the things that you do in the suburbs. And the idea was that they were trying to create music that Becky's would want to play in their vehicles you know, minivan, of course, and also music that Becky's would feel comfortable with their teens listening to when, for example, historically black forms like hip hop or rap became really popular on the charts. The idea was that Becky's Hmm. were not comfortable with that music, which of course is based on longstanding anti-black racism in white evangelical communities. Real or imagined, the idea was Becky will not want this music. (laughs) And so a lot of sales and marketing went into that. And then also... Becky's want their children to conform to the advice literature that was really popular in the 1980s and 1990s from Hmm. conservative figures like James Dobson, who wanted chaste, sober, well-adjusted, you know, white evangelical teens who would go on to get married and have a really traditional household where there were no feminists and men were, you know, providers and women were stay-at-home parents. Hmm. And so in in many ways, you can see that the charts reflect that concern. And there were always dissenting voices. You know, you'd get exceptional figures who would write music that was not in keeping with that consensus, but those those artists tended not to chart. Hmm. <laughs> 
That's very helpful. Then, so building on that and what you've been telling us about some of the messages related to sexuality or and gender, we started the beginning of the conversation saying that you describe contemporary Christian music as the soundtrack of white evangelical culture. I'm wondering if there are some other things that you think we should know that listening to this music, what that soundtrack tells us about white evangelical religion or politics in the United States. Yes. You know, one thing that I didn't mention and that I I should have mentioned is that a lot of prescriptions around sexuality also had to do with not just, you know, not having sex outside of marriage, but encouraging heterosexual marriage as well. And also there were lots of anti-abortion songs. I, I bring those two things up because those are conversations that keep coming up again and again, particularly in the late 20th century. And they, in many ways, reflect evangelical reactions to the world around them. So, you know, for example, during the AIDS crisis Mm. in conservative evangelical communities, there was a fear around sexuality. And I think what it tells us is that conservative evangelical folks have had remarkable success in some ways when it comes to creating media-driven visions of the ideal life. But that success has limits, especially when it comes to the market and the marketplace and tech changes. So one of the things that I write about is the world of contemporary Christian music, the idea that you could create a space, parallel universe, for raising um, evangelical young people. So this idea that you could create bubble children, (laughs) if you will, um, that is, it's burst by the internet. (laughs) I'm a mom and I have kids and you cannot censor the world in that way anymore. It's just impossible. I mean, you you can try and people go to pretty extreme lengths to try. But the world that um, contemporary Christian music was built on, that that world has been disrupted Hmm. by the internet, especially by file sharing. So Napster and then streaming technology, Spotify. Mm -hmm. So music cannot Hmm. hold that place. But then also the nature of institutions and how they function has changed. I mean, I think all of us know that the way that institutions have functioned now is in a period of disruption, (laughs) I think, you know, just socially, politically. And so evangelical spaces are also experiencing that. And contemporary Christian music really thrived in a world where there were denominations and then parachurch organizations Mm -hmm. that were all functioning together. So things like youth group, if you've heard of youth group, you know, youth group attendance is down. It has changed. Tons of different kinds of activities that would include contemporary Christian music. So Christian camps, Christian music festivals, denominational meetings, all of those things are in serious decline. So I think one of the things that tracing the history of contemporary Christian music shows is that the forms of music that thrived in creating that world, their decline reveals the decline of institutions generally. So like the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, is in very precipitous decline, and they were some of the biggest consumers of Hmm. this work. But one thing that I think is really fascinating is Mm. there's a, another overlapping industry that is meant for, not for entertainment, like how uh, Hmm. contemporary Christian music functioned, but for 
liturgy, so yeah. so worship spaces. Um, it's called worship music. It's kind of an on the nose um, <laughs> title, but that music reflects kind of an adaptation to a declining institutional reality. Worship music is not necessarily as overtly political as contemporary Christian music, but it is definitely used in political discourse in the communities that have inherited the contemporary Christian world. So the conservative, evangelical, Mm -hmm. predominantly, but not exclusively white communities. Worship music Mm -hmm. does not require the same institutional realities, and it is Mm. alive and well thriving there on TikTok. (laughs) And people like listeners to The Revealer would have heard of a figure named Sean Foyt, who is known as a worship protester, who has protested pandemic restrictions, Mm. has protested drag performances, has protested abortion. He is a worship artist who has been on the Reawaken tour, which is the kind of election denying Trump conspiracy Hmm. tour. (laughs) So there are musical expressions of the kind of conservative ideas that were present, like kind of the latest versions of, of those ideas. But the business of contemporary Christian music, all those institutions are not what they once were. Hmm. That's very helpful. So I I have two remaining questions. The first I want to ask is based on um, a survey that you did as part of the research for your book. And I should tell listeners that you did extensive research for the, the book. And just one of the many things you did was send out a survey and you received, it says in the book, about 1,200 responses. And you write that, quote, most claimed that contemporary Christian music shaped their lives profoundly for better and for worse, end quote. So I'm curious, what are some ways that this music would have profoundly shaped someone's life for the worse? You know, they're now an adult reflecting back on this music industry. What are some ways that you believe that people would report that this music shaped their life for the worse? That's a great question. And I I tried to include in the book some representative comments from people whose lives were were shaped in, in both positive and negative ways. And Mm -hmm. for the people that experienced, who would report that it shaped their life for the worse, I think I'll I'll just give a a few examples. One would be um, particularly from young women, although although men um, reported this too, but young women who were raised with some of the messaging around abstinence and really specific gender hierarchies, just a really high level of anxiety and angst Mm -hmm. around their own bodies, around their sexuality, Mm -hmm. around just the act of having sex, you know, is was kind of terrifying for many of them. A, A lot of contemporary Christian music that was aimed at promoting abstinence was explicit messaging to young women. I think another would be there were a lot of non-white evangelical people raised in predominantly white evangelical spaces who report Mm -hmm. now looking back and seeing how they were deeply formed by ideologies about race. A A couple of people who I cite in the book talk about growing up in an immigrant congregation where their parents were looking for ways to raise them as Christians and so saw contemporary Christian music as an opportunity to you know, build up their faith. And this person now Mm. is just now kind of 
reckoning with what it meant for that to be so culturally coded as white and really wrestling with that. And then especially for young people in the LGBTQ plus community Mm -hmm. who were raised with pretty strict ideas about sex and sexuality, some of whom I, I write about are creating popular music efforts to reclaim that space, which is really fascinating. A figure known as Flamey Grant, who is now performing in drag. When I talked with them about what it was like growing up yearning to be a contemporary Christian music artist, but knowing that they were not going to be accepted in mm. that world, there was so much pain there. They've since re- reclaimed that and have, you know, when they perform Amy Grant songs in spaces, mm. you know, it could be a church or a bar that people cry, they all cry together. Music is such a powerful thing (laughs) in the human experience. And so for folks for whom that is a pain point, when Mm. you hear Mm -hmm. music that takes you back to that time, it can can be really hard. Well, then for our last question, what does the place of contemporary Christian music and Christian pop culture today uh, you talked about it being, you know, on the decline now. What does that place today, that decline, alongside, as we all watch, the prominent and increasing influence of Pentecostals and Charismatics on the national stage? You mentioned the Reawaken Tour. What does all of this tell you about evangelicals and conservative Christians in the United States right now and what they want or hope for going into the 2024 election? I think that's such a great question. I I think one thing that the rise of, of worship music shows is that yeah. the nature, I think, of, of what we think of as evangelicalism has transformed mm-hmm. over the last mm. 100 years. And I think if we were having this conversation 50 years ago, we would be talking in in many ways for all intents and purposes about Southern Baptist sensibilities. So, you know, that would have been the, the mm. powerful group that we'd, we'd be needing to reckon with. Talking now yeah. about conservative evangelicals, I think we need to be talking about yeah. charismatic Christians. Some work that I've done with Public Religion Research Mm. Institute, PRRI, (laughs) a wonderful organization that I'm really privileged to work with. We did some research into people who claim born again or evangelical identity, and a pretty sizable majority of them report that they are engaging in practices associated with Pentecostalism and with charismatic Christianity. So things like being in a church service and hearing someone speak in tongues, praying for divine Mm. healing, prophecy, spiritual warfare, these kinds of things that were once on the fringe. If you look at the prominence of the music of Pentecostal and charismatic communities in general, predominantly white evangelical spaces, there's no question that that is the energized arm of of evangelicalism. You know, when we think about the so-called religious right, I think the energized core of that is going to be charismatic and Pentecostal. I think we're going to see much more Mm -hmm. talk, especially leading up to the 2024 election. One of the things I talk about in the book is how the Trump administration appealed directly to Pentecostals and charismatics. Um, His pastor is a famous televangelist, Paula White Kane, also married to a musician from Journey. But not just that, he invited Pentecostal and charismatic celebrities, many of whom were 
contemporary Christian music people or who were worship artists. I would guess that Trump is not super aware of this, but someone in his crew understands if you want to get to these people, you get to them through music. And he was very effective at that. So I would expect in the lead up to the 2024 election, I mean, as of this recording, Mm -hmm. it's the presumptive Mm -hmm. nominee, um, Donald Trump, that we're going to see much more of the charismatic and Pentecostal Christians who support him, many of whom are some of the most popular worship artists around, not all. I think it's important to note that there are Hmm. Pentecostals and Charismatics who are not supportive of Donald Trump at all, particularly non-white Charismatics and Pentecostals, and there's lots of those. But in that predominantly um, white Charismatic Hmm. and Pentecostal space, we're going to see them show their support. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see Trump in his campaign show support right back toward them. I mean, one of the things that he did, and I I write about this in the book, is he went to some pretty charismatic church services. And it's unusual to see a national candidate go into the kinds of congregations where people are, you know, doing these really, really expressive Mm. practices. Um, And he, I would be so surprised if he is a devout charismatic, but he was letting them lay their hands on him and, you know, do prophecies over him. You know, I think that Mm -hmm. he shares certain affinities with these groups and I think we'll see him continue to have a posture of hospitality toward them. And it, it makes sense, you know, in terms of, of his core. Yeah. Yeah. Well, goodness. Thank you for that. And thank you for uh, this conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Leah Payne. You can find an excerpt from her book, God Gave Rock and Roll to You, A History of Contemporary Christian Music in The Revealer's upcoming March issue at therevealer.org. And you can order a copy of God Gave Rock and Roll to You at your preferred online book vendor now. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing for the third episode in our three-part series on conservative religion and politics, LGBTQ Republicans and their place within a party that, for decades, has aligned itself with the anti-queer religious right. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Riley Norgrove. If you haven't yet, we'd love it if you'd rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.